The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Targeting Disease Pathophysiology to Achieve Effective Treatment in Parigo Nodularis. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash AMT 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Nicholas Milanazar from the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine. Welcome to this educational activity on nodularis. If you haven't already watched the introduction, please do so now. At a very simple rudimentary level, nodularis is a distinct clinical disease defined by the presence of chronic pruritus and multiple localized elevated firm and nodular lesions. When you look at claims-based studies on nodularis, the prevalence is much higher than we might otherwise anticipate, about 72 people per 100,000 in the United States as of October 2015. The spectrum of presentation for paragonodularis can vary quite greatly as any provider who has seen or treated patients with paragonodularis can attest to. The lesions are often raised, they can be elevated and crusted, and they're often hyperpigmented. And those are some of the most defining features of paragonodularis. Nodules are usually symmetrically distributed on areas of the skin accessible to scratching. So this is important because if it's not symmetrical, if you have a patient coming in with unilateral or regional prigonodularis that is not bilateral, it's important to consider other causes such as neuropathic causes. The face, palm, soles, scalp, and genitals are rarely affected in prigonodularis. Again, a very important thing to consider. Additional lesions, such as lichenified plaques or excoriations, may be induced by the scratching and picking or rubbing behaviors that are characteristic of parigonodularis, also an important thing to consider. And the paritis that patients experience can be accompanied by burning, stinging, or pain. Sometimes these patients might not even report itching as the primary symptom. They might report pain or burning. And this can be confusing to the clinician because we classically think of parigo as a paritic condition. It is itchy by definition. And yet some patients lack the vocabulary or the insight to explain itching as itching and instead report it as pain or discomfort. And so these are important things to consider when questioning a patient that might have parigonodularis. Parigonodularis can have a significant negative impact on quality of life for patients. The paritis that patients experience is often unrelenting. It can lead to sleep disturbances and psychosocial disturbances, as well as depression and anxiety. Patients with PN have higher rates of depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric conditions. Often, patients with prigonodularis report avoiding social interactions with others due to their disease. We've already discussed the severity of the burden of disease that parigonodularis patients can experience. There can be severe social isolation and impaired quality of life. There can be sleep deprivation, missed days of work and school. In addition, there are several common comorbidities that can be associated with parigonodularis. Dermatologic conditions like atopic dermatitis and other diseases such as chronic kidney disease, diabetes, heart failure, hepatitis, and lymphoma have also been associated. Although these diseases have been associated with prigonodularis, the exact relationship between the two has not been fully delineated, and it might be that these represent a different version or a different entity from true primary prigonodularis. When we talk about the pathogenesis of prigonodularis, it's important that we take a step backwards and consider the pathways that drive the itch scratch cycle. When we talk about itch, itch can exist as either acute 
or chronic. Acute itch is largely driven by histaminergic-dependent processes. This is why patients with acute itch, such as allergic contact dermatitis, can respond and do respond quite well to antihistamines. Chronic itch, itch lasting greater than six weeks, is a separate process, and that separate process is transmitted by non-histaminergic-dependent nerves. This explains why patients experiencing chronic pruritus, whether it be for pruritonodularis or any other reason, often do not respond to antihistaminergics. And if you don't believe me about the difference in the processes that drive both chronic and acute itch, we can actually prove it by looking at the pathways. So from the skin, there are two distinct pathways that transmit the itch sensation. And these pathways are independent of each other. They have separate nerve endings, separate neuronal receptors, and they travel from the skin into the dorsal root ganglia, and they can be tracked from the dorsal root ganglia into the spinal cord and up into the central nervous system. In the central nervous system, studies have shown that there are independent structures in the brain that are activated by acute and chronic itch, meaning when a patient experiences acute itch, different structures in the brain light up compared to when a patient experiences chronic itch. These pathways for acute and chronic itch remain separate and distinct in the skin all the way up into the central nervous system. And this explains why they are so different in terms of their treatments and in their response to treatments. When we talk about the actual molecules that are driving pruritus in pruritonodularis, it's important to consider that there is a complex interplay between neural and immune modulators. The two most important immune modulators that are currently considered as drivers of chronic pruritus are IL-4, 13, and 31. All three of these molecules contribute to a pernicious itch-scratch cycle. They are released in response to scratching behavior, but they also, when released, have activity on inflammatory cells, mast cells, eosinophils, and T cells to further drive itching and to change the skin barrier. Now let's look at a video that describes the pathogenesis of pruritonodularis. Pruritonodularis, or PN, is a distinct chronic neural and immune-mediated skin disease characterized by intense itch and nodular lesions. As one of the itchiest skin conditions, PN is characterized by the development of a pathological itch-scratch cycle and neuronal sensitization, leading to disease chronicity independent of the initial disease triggers. Histological examination of PN lesional skin demonstrates dense infiltrates of eosinophils, T lymphocytes, and mast cells, which release a wide range of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Eosinophils accumulate in the dermis of PN lesions, releasing the neuropeptides nerve growth factor and substance P, and exacerbate neurogenic pathways. Eosinophil cationic protein and eosinophil-derived neurotoxin eosinophil protein X, the granular pro-inflammatory components of eosinophil cells, are also upregulated in the upper dermis of PN lesions. Interleukin-4 and vasoactive intestinal polypeptide are additional eosinophilic contributors of PN pathogenesis. These pro-inflammatory and pro-fibrogenic cytokines induce pruritus and erythema of the lesions. T lymphocytes play an important role in pathogenesis through the release of interleukin-31 at the lesion sites. 
Increased IL-31 expression is strongly associated with itch and a wide range of pruritic skin diseases, with the relative highest expression found in the lesional skin of PN patients. Along with eosinophils and T lymphocytes, mast cells also help maintain the inflammatory response in PN, releasing histamine, prostaglandins, and other itch-mediating substances. Increased expression of the neuropeptide substance P and calcitonin gene-related peptide, neurotrophins such as nerve growth factor and endothelin support the notion of dysregulated neuroimmune epithelial crosstalk, also explaining the neuronal and epidermal hyperplasia of skin in patients with PN. In summary, though the exact pathogenesis of PN is unclear, it appears that increased activity of type 2 immune cells and cytokines along with certain other immune cells and inflammatory mediators, may contribute to signs and symptoms of PN through interactions with neurons and other dermal and epidermal resident cells. In line with a central role of Th2 cytokines, therapies targeting IL-4, IL-13, and IL-31 have demonstrated short- and long-term efficacy in treating paragonodularis, offering new hope for improving patient care. Dupilumab, which inhibits IL-4 and IL-13 signaling, has been approved to treat PN. When you look at parigonodularis lesional skin, you see a marked difference from normal skin. There's epidermal thickening with hyperkeratosis, acanthosis, and often a significant inflammatory infiltrate. This is important because it indicates that there is a pathophysiologic process that drives skin changes at the areas of affected skin in patients with parigonodularis. Some characteristic histopathologic features of parigonodularis are thick, compact orthohyperkeratosis, hyperplasia, focal parakeratosis, and hypergranulosis in the epidermis. While these three features are characteristic of PN, they are not a requirement for a diagnosis of PN. They are simply histopathologic features that are commonly seen. In the dermis, there can be papillary dermal fibrosis, increased number of capillaries, and a mixed superficial, perivascular, or interstitial inflammatory infiltrate. There are numerous rating scales for itch and PN-related quality of life metrics. These are often used in patient assessment and to assess treatment response. The most common is the average itch numeric rating scale, and this is perhaps the easiest one to do in clinic. It's simply asking the patient to rate their average itch on a scale from 0 to 10, 0 being no itch, and 10 being the worst itch ever. It's quick and efficient. Additional metrics that providers can consider using include the worst itch numeric rating scale, the worst itch visual analog scale, the parioactivity and severity score, or dermatology life quality index, or the itchy qual. The majority of the last three options on this slide are primarily used in clinical trials or by researchers. The first three, however, are all options that can be used by busy clinicians to get a quick and simple assessment of where their patient is with parigonodularis in terms of their itch severity. So what are the treatment goals when we talk about parigonodularis? Well, the most important is reducing the itch. If we can reduce the itch, we can help our patients with parigonodularis and 
This is why for most of the clinical trials occurring right now in the world of pryogonodularis, this is the primary endpoint, reducing pruritus. Another important goal is to interrupt the itch-scratch cycle. By interrupting the itch-scratch cycle, we can help arrest the disease progression. After you've treated the itch and pryogonodularis, patients care deeply about healing their PN lesions. This can often be a challenge as hyperpigmentation can be stubborn and difficult to treat. When we talk about treatment for pryogonodularis, we often consider two different arms, the neural side and the immunologic side of treatment. Both try to target the two different processes that drive pryogonodularis. We know from the physiology that there is a strong immunologic arm that drives this process, but there's also a neural component. And so sometimes we have to treat one or both pathways in order for patients to improve. When we originally met and wrote this treatment ladder in 2021, there was no FDA-approved treatment for pryogonodularis. So all of these treatments were based off of case reports or provider experience or expert consensus. None of them were FDA-approved and they were all off-label, including topical calcineurin inhibitors. We can see here that there's a good tiering approach to the treatment of pryogonodularis so that providers can move up on the ladder as patients fail multiple therapies. We now have an FDA-approved treatment with dupilumab. Dupilumab is the first FDA-approved treatment for pryogonodularis, and it has proved an important tool in our arsenal for the treatment of pryogonodularis. One could argue that in this modern landscape, dupilumab could be moved down to Tier 1, since it is the only FDA-approved treatment, or between Tier 1 and Tier 2. After failure of topical steroids, one could consider dupilumab. Let's briefly discuss Tier 1 neural topical therapies. We have topical capsaicin and topical cal, or ketamine amitriptyline lidocaine. Both of these medications require a compounding pharmacy to create the formulations. As such, most are not covered by insurance and can be quite expensive for patients. Regardless, there are case reports and cohort studies demonstrating the efficacy of both of these agents. I would typically only use these agents in patients with more limited disease or localized disease because, again, they are expensive and can be difficult to apply everywhere in large quantities. We'll now discuss topical therapies that are immunologic in their treatment mechanism. There are various topical calcineurin inhibitors, pimecrolimus, tacrolimus, there are vitamin D analogs, and then topical steroids and cryotherapy. In today's modern landscape with an FDA-approved treatment, there is a questionable role in the use of pimecrolimus, tacrolimus, or vitamin D analogs such as calcipatriene in the treatment of pryogonodularis. Nevertheless, if patients respond to topical steroids and need a steroid-sparing agent to control their disease after using topical steroids, these can be tried. Cryotherapy, followed by injection of intralesional steroids, has been reported in case reports and as expert opinion for pryogonodularis treatment. However, this treatment modality is often best reserved for patients with minimal or mild disease as it can be painful and overwhelming to treat multiple lesions in various locations. Let's now discuss skin-directed systemic therapies such as phototherapy. Narrowband UVB 
is a wonderful treatment for all causes of itching in many patients, whether it be psoriasis, eczema, or pariagonodularis. And we all know that narrowband UVB is both safe and effective. Regardless, many patients cannot come in three days a week for narrowband UVB, and home phototherapy units can be cost prohibitive or space limiting. Patients might not have the space in their home to have a home phototherapy unit. PUVA has also been used successfully in the treatment of patients with pariagonodularis. However, with PUVA, we have to worry about cumulative dose and the effects that it could have in terms of secondary skin cancers. There are many systemic therapies that we can use to treat patients with pariagonodularis that target the neural component of their itch. Gabapentin, pregabalin, paroxetine, duloxetine, and amitriptyline have all been reported in various ways or methods. Gabapentin is quite successful at targeting the neural process of itching and is fairly easy to start and titrate up. There are several systemic therapies that have been studied in patients through either case series or cohort or case control studies, and these all target the immunologic pathophysiology of pariagonodularis. The most widely studied agents have been methotrexate and cyclosporin. While these medications have been shown to be effective in pariagonodularis, they come with risks. Both methotrexate and cyclosporin are severe immunosuppressant medications that can increase the rate of infections. And with methotrexate, we have to worry about a cumulative dose in terms of liver toxicity. Cyclosporin requires frequent lab monitoring. Once a patient is stable, it still requires lab monitoring every two to three months. The FDA does not recommend that providers use cyclosporin for immunologic conditions such as psoriasis or pariagonodularis for a period longer than 12 months, meaning most patients should be off of cyclosporin within a 12-month period. In practice, I try to have patients off of cyclosporin within a three-month period. There are numerous neural systemic agents that have been studied or reported on in the use of pariagonodularis. These include naltrexone, intranasal butorphanol, and thalidomide. Thalidomide, for many years, was the mainstay treatment for pariagonodularis. In the past three years, with the advent of dupilumab, thalidomide has fallen out of favor. I have personally not prescribed thalidomide for a PN patient in over four years. Thalidomide has significant side effects, a very serious REMS process to enroll patients and get them on treatment, and is incredibly expensive and off-label. Thalidomide's mechanism of action in pariagonodularis is not well understood, but some individuals have postulated that thalidomide works in PN patients due to its side effect of peripheral neuropathy. Intranasal butorphanol is a powerful antipyretic agent. However, it is also a controlled substance and must be used with caution. Dupilumab is now the only FDA-approved treatment for pariagonodularis. It has undergone two phase three randomized controlled trials and is approved to be used for all patients with pariagonodularis regardless of severity. This is the first time that a biologic for dermatologic indication has been approved by the FDA without a requirement for a minimum disease severity. Dupilumab is now no longer considered a tier 3, and most it would be considered tier 1, or by some it would be considered as between tier 1 and 2. Azathioprine has been reported to improve itch in PN patients. However, in case reports of azathioprine in patients with chronic pruritus, nearly a third of patients have to discontinue treatment due to laboratory abnormalities or side effects.
Nemolizumab is a promising up-and-coming agent that is now currently considered experimental and is in phase three randomized clinical trial. Its top-line data results were recently reported and will be discussed later on. There are several experimental treatment options that may prove useful in paragonodularis, but currently lack any sufficient data. These include cannabinoids, mycophenolate, JAK inhibitors, and anti-IL-31 oncostatin M receptor antibodies. There are currently topical JAK inhibitors undergoing clinical trials to assess their efficacy in paragonodularis. Dupilumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that inhibits signaling of IL-4 and 13 pathways. For eczema patients, dupilumab is approved to be used down to six months of age due to its safety. In paragonodularis, it is approved to be used from 18 and up. Importantly, dupilumab has no restriction in terms of its FDA approval for paragonodularis in terms of disease severity. The FDA specifically commented on there is no requirement that a patient fail a topical steroid before consideration for dupilumab. The primary outcome in the clinical trial for dupilumab and PN was a proportion of patients with a four or more point improvement from baseline on the worst itch numeric rating scale. In the clinical trials for dupilumab and PN, there were two arms of the trial. One arm of the trial enrolled patients with only parigonodularis and no history of atopy at all. The second arm of the trial included patients with parigonodularis as well as a history of atopy. Both arms of the trial improved with dupilumab. This is important because it means that the patients that were studied in the dupilumab trials for parigonodularis did not just have eczema. They had primary parigonodularis and also improved. FDA approval for dupilumab was based on results of phase 3 Liberty PN prime and prime 2 trials. In the trials, the dosing was the same as that used in atopic dermatitis adult patients. 600 milligram sub-Q loading dose followed by 300 milligram every two-week dose. The clinical trial was for 24 weeks and it was a placebo-controlled trial. Additional secondary outcomes of the trial included proportion of patients with skin clear or nearly clear of nodules at weeks 24 and proportion of patients who achieved a response on both scales at week 24. Both trials enrolled adult patients with PN who were inadequately controlled with topical medication or for whom topicals were not advised. Enrollment criteria included a worst itch numeric rating scale of greater than or equal to 7 and an IgA PN severity of 3 or 4. So these patients had severe disease. After 24 weeks of treatment, patients underwent a 12-week follow-up. In most parigonodularis clinical trials to date, the placebo response has been quite high, so we must consider that when looking at this data. Regardless of this fact, the effects are quite evident and quite clear. Nearly 41% of patients in the dupilumab arm had a four or more point reduction in their worst-ditch NRS. Nearly 29% achieved an IgA PN severity score of 0 or 1, and 18% achieved both endpoints at weeks 12 and 24. We see that at week 24, this data further improved with nearly 59% of patients having a four-point reduction in their itch, 46% achieving an IgA of 0 or 1, and 35% having an improvement in both scores. Treatment-related adverse events in the dupilumab arm were 59.9% versus 51% in the placebo. The safety profile of dupilumab in these trials 
was the same as that reported in the atopic trials. There was no new safety signals reported in either of these trials and PN patients. The itch of PN patients treated with dupilumab improved dramatically and rapidly. However, the skin lesion improvement lagged behind the improvement in the itch. This likely occurs because of the difficulty in treating some of the components of the skin lesions in PN patients. Hyperpigmentation in any condition, whether PN, eczema, psoriasis, can last for months and sometimes years. Post hoc result analysis in the dupilumab trials in PN patients demonstrate efficacy despite prior immunosuppressant or phototherapy use. This indicates that dupilumab worked for patients in PN despite prior failures of either immunosuppressants or phototherapy. This suggests that dupilumab may work on primary targets that are the drivers or potential drivers of parigonodularis. When we look at a registry of 19 patients with parigonodularis treated with dupilumab for a median of 16 months, we see a tremendous impact on quality of life and depressive symptoms. Specifically, we see a massive drop in mean pruritus NRS from 8.5 which is quite high, to 3. We also see improvements in depression scores from 15 to 6, a massive improvement. What this means for our patients is that treating PN with dupilumab helps improve their overall quality of life, it reduces their itch, and it improves their depressive symptoms. Nemolizumab is the new up-and-coming treatment undergoing investigation for PN. And in 2023, at the annual American Academy of Dermatology Conference, top-line results from the Phase 3 Olympia 2 trial were reported. There was an impressive 40% of participants achieving a four-point reduction from baseline in itch or more after just the first dose. There were significant improvements in sleep disturbance and reduction in skin lesions. We are awaiting the Phase 3 Olympia 1 trial outcomes at 24 weeks. Over the past 10 years, we have witnessed a proliferation of potential treatments for parigonodularis patients. And as of today, there are multiple emerging therapies undergoing clinical trial investigation for the treatment of parigonodularis. Nemolizumab is one, as well as multiple JAK inhibitors, whether they be oral or topical. There are also several agents which are novel mechanism of action agents being studied in parigonodularis. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AMT 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals.